we're moving into a new series, a three-week series called Generosity. Uh, and uh, there's a few things that I know that are true of each one of you. Uh, each one of you has a certain amount of time. Each one of you has a certain amount of talent. Uh, and each one of you has a certain amount of treasure. Uh, and we all have limited resources of time, talent, uh, and treasure. And sometimes we can look beside ourselves. We talk about this in the comparison trap and say, I wish I had more time, talent, and treasure. I wish I had as much as that person. And uh, we can get caught in comparison. But the reality is that each one of us has all three of those things in some capacity. Um, how we utilize those limited resources is what is often referred to as stewardship. So what do we do with our time? What do we do with our treasure? What do we do with our talent? Uh, that's what we refer to as stewardship. And we all have the opportunity to steward whatever uh, capacity you have in those three areas uh, in a certain way. Um, something that I also know about you, not, that, not just that you have those three things, uh, but you also want your life to have meaning. I think every one of us wants our lives to have meaning. Time, talent, and treasure add meaning to your life, but if they actually become your source of meaning, uh, your life is actually void of meaning. Uh, Time, treasure, and talent are a means to an end, and whatever your end is, is actually what brings meaning to your life. Uh, So being a means to an end is something that makes anything meaningful. That's actually what the definition of meaning means, a means to an end. The means actually becomes the process in which we engage in to find meaning in our lives. But the end is important. We need to understand what the means to the end is. If you want to have a meaningful life, you have to, be, you have to come up uh, for yourself to be involved in something that is beyond yourself in order for your life to have meaning. And so all of the principles we're going to be talking about throughout the next three weeks are applicable to time to talent and to treasure, we are going to zero in more specifically on treasure. I mean, we might touch on the other two a little bit, uh, but the next three weeks are going to be primarily about treasure, primarily about money. Um, And when you decide to be a means to an end, your money becomes a means rather than the end itself. When you decide that you want to be a part of something beyond yourself, then your money actually can be meaningful uh, because it's part of a meaningful life. Um, This is what it... Uh, This is what we're talking about when we're talking about generosity, stewarding whatever we have for something beyond ourselves. And when we give it away, when we move it beyond ourselves, that's generosity. And Sunwest doesn't typically talk about money much. uh, And I like that. How many of you guys like it that we don't talk about money much? You're like, okay, thank goodness. Uh, I always get nervous when I talk about money because I'm like, uh, it's somebody's first, it's always somebody's first Sunday. Uh, and I always feel like someone's walking in being like, oh, of course, the church is talking about money. If this is your first Sunday, uh, just so you know, we haven't talked about money in a couple of years, and it just so happens he showed up on the week we're, we're talking about money. Um, but I, I, this is what I like about our church, that we don't talk about uh, money very often. Uh, and we, we do... We do uh, make appeals for money once a year, and that's on our Christmas Eve service. We make an appeal for money, uh, and that money that is given isn't, goes into our benevolence fund. It goes, doesn't go to anything within the ministries of Sunrise. It goes out into our community. Uh, that is the one time every year that we make an appeal for money. Typically, outside of that, we don't make many appeals for money. Um, and, and I like that uh, because church is actually, uh, if it becomes about money, uh, then it actually is not about the thing that we should be about. However, there's a shadow side to that. Uh, There's an imbalance that can happen. If you don't talk about money, um, you actually ignore one of the key things in your life, in my life, that causes so much stress 
anxieties. It's a very real, practical reality that we all have to work with. And so if we don't ever talk about it, uh, we're not actually addressing one of the primary things that we spend a lot of our time thinking about it. The second thing that happens, the second imbalance that happens is if we don't talk about it, we actually ignore uh, a major part of what the Bible talks about. Uh, there's, the Bible talks about money a lot. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you can read uh, that the Gospel of Luke is primarily about money. All of the, the parables, the teachings, there's so much of in it, in it that's about money. And we don't often think about this, but Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven. Let that think, sink in for a second. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven. But ironically, Jesus never asks for money. There's one, there's one time in the Gospels where he asked for money, um, and he asked for a coin because he wanted to use a coin as an illustration. That's the only time that Jesus asked for money. But Jesus talked about money very often. It was a central theme uh, in his teaching. Jesus talked a ton about money, but he never asked for money. And that should tell us that God wants to talk to us about our money, but it's not for his sake. It's actually for our sake and for the sake of others. There's something about money that is tied to our hearts and tied to the ministry and advancement of the gospel that God thinks is really, really important. And so we want to talk about that over the next few weeks and the importance of generosity. Uh, And when it comes to money, the biblical message is pretty consistent that there's no significant spiritual growth unless you put your money and your attitude into God's hands. It's just too big of an issue. It's too pivotal an issue. Our hearts are tied to our values, and our values uh, can, seen, can be seen most concretely in how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our treasure, how we spend our talent, but yes, how we spend our money. Um, the scriptures give a lot of principles for this in a lot of different areas, principles for how we manage our money, principles for what it means to actually put money in God's hands. What, is that, what does that even look like? What, what does that even mean? Well, you don't have to look very far in Scripture to find out what that even means or what that, that's all about. And so we're going to, we can look at a lot of passages, but we're going to look at one passage this morning, particularly in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, and the summary of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and the title and the point of my message this morning is simply give like God gives. Everybody say give like God gives. Give like God gives. So there you have it. That's the point. Uh, you can leave. Uh, you, got, you got what you needed. Um, but let's unpack this concept. Uh, and you'll see this principle throughout scriptures. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And just a little bit of context in this passage of scripture of what's going on in the background, what, what the Paul, the guy who's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, is, is addressing is that there's been famine in Jerusalem. Uh, there's been a famine. Uh, there are many people who are in need. Paul is going to the churches in Asia Minor, particularly writing this, uh, this letter to the Corinthian church, and he's raising money, asking followers of Jesus to give money to famine relief in Jerusalem. It's not unlike this morning when you hear a shelter update and we're going to build houses and we say, uh, join in financially, or you hear partners update and, say, and saying, these are the needs that are in the world, and we're, we're going to address these needs. Would you consider giving? This is exactly, 2,000 years ago, this is what Paul is doing. He's writing a letter to the church saying, this is, the, this is what's happening on the ground in Jerusalem. Uh, would you consider giving? Uh, and so, and, and we're looking at one portion, but, but the, these couple of chapters that this is in is, is all around the same theme, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, but we're picking it up in verse 6. Uh, So I'm going to read it for you. It says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. 
You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase, uh, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you were obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. Such a powerful passage. And I would encourage you in your own time to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 and get, get the full kind of feel for uh, what Paul is saying. Uh, and I want to talk about two important things from this uh, passage. There's lots of pieces that we could probably talk about, but just uh, looking at two uh, things. First, the impact of generosity, and then we'll look at the motive for generosity. So the impact of generosity. Why is generosity so important? What impact is it making? What, what impact is the financial uh, generosity making at this time and continues to make, I think, when uh, believers and Jesus, followers of Jesus step out and give uh, in radical ways? Uh, we see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. It says, You'll be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. So he's saying when you give, you actually get. I mean, that's not the motive of why we give, but it is a byproduct. And anybody who practices regular generosity, you will probably hear that same uh, theme, that I give and I get something back. I mean, um, I don't want to pick on Jake, uh, but Jake has a hard time holding it together every time he talks about El Salvador. Do you see that? You know, why does he keep going? Uh, well, obviously because he's impacting lives, but do you see the, the way that it's affecting him? And when you talk to Brad, when you talk to uh, Greg, you know, why are they involved in these other? Why, why would they give so generously? Why would they sacrifice so much? Yes, because there's a need, but it's also changing them as they step out. And so uh, we are enriched. That's what Paul is saying. We are enriched when we step out in generosity. We get something when we give. And ironically, when we hold, because we think we get something when we hold things and we don't give it away, we actually lose. It's the irony of the gospel. You give it away and you actually get. Uh, But it's not the motive of why you give. We'll talk about the motive in a second. Uh, But it is a byproduct. It's a symptom of generosity. And when we take your gifts, Paul continues, when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things. Everybody say two good things. Two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express thanks to God. So two good things, needs will be met, and then secondly, they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And I've been a part of, I would say, way too many conversations in church circles that are debating what purpose generosity should serve, to serve the physical needs or to serve spiritual needs. And I've heard, I've heard 
people talking about the different perspectives. Well, it's important to you know, address uh, the physical needs, and so we should actually uh, do humanitarian effort. And then you hear other groups saying you know, it's important to address the, the spiritual needs, so we need to do ev- evangelistic efforts so people can actually know in their heads and in their hearts the good news of Jesus, and we separate these two as if they are mutually exclusive. This is a very modern way of thinking that we, that we can separate the spiritual needs and the physical needs. This was not first century thinking. Now, they knew intuitively that the person, the, that, that, that every person is a whole person, body, mind, soul, spirit. That when we address one need, it's actually impacting another need. We can't split people into quarters and say, which need are we going to uh, actually address? Which one are we going to be generous towards? In fact, if we love people, we love the whole person. Does that make sense? We love every part of them. And every part that we minister to actually communicates the value and, the, and addresses a need in another way. Uh, we've talked about this lots at, at SunWest, but just a quick reminder, uh, you know, in the ni- 1940s, uh, Abraham Maslow created this thing that is still taught in psychology classes today called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And the simple premise was simply uh, that, you, that somebody cannot realize the next level of their need if the foundational need before it isn't met. So if you don't address the physical needs of somebody, you can't actually address their needs for safety and security. If you don't address their needs for safety and security, you can't actually address their needs of love and belonging and so on and so forth. And the need of transcendence, which is all the way at the top, uh, Abraham Maslow added at the end of his life because he realized that there was a, a need that he didn't articulate earlier when he first came up with the model, and that was, the, that was their spiritual needs. That we have a need, we have a spiritual need. But sometimes in an effort just to address spiritual needs, if we ignore people's physical safety, uh, their need for identity, their need for purpose, if we we ignore these things, uh, people actually won't realize their spiritual need because those other foundational needs aren't being met. It's one of the beautiful things about shelter, about partners, is, is, is they're on the ground, these ministries are on the ground addressing safety needs, security needs, physical needs, uh, and if you, if, if you, talk long enough with people that are a part of these ministries, you'll realize that it's more than just those needs that are being addressed, but there's spiritual needs that are happening as we love, as we care for people in very practical ways. We talked about last week that loving people and loving God and loving people cannot be separated. If we as followers of Jesus love God, then Jesus tells us we must necessarily love people. When he was asked for one commandment, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, Jesus gave two, love God, love people. He can't separate them. And so in following God, we actually love other people the way that God loves them, and we don't try and separate them into different compartments, but we recognize that we are all whole beings, and we have needs uh, that are holistic. They're physical and spiritual needs. Um, And so I'm going to actually steal partner's slogan this morning, um, because I love it, and it says, to love is to act. Can we say that together? To love is to act. You know, there's very few slogans that I feel like say so much in so little words. Um, and this is one of those things. It, if we actually believed and lived out this truth, how would that change the way that we live? How would that change our priorities? How would that change our understanding of what love is? It's not complicated, uh, but that doesn't mean it's easy. To love is to act. This was foundational 
in the explosive growth and multiplication of the early church. So coming back to the first century context in which Paul is writing. The radical generosity of followers of Jesus actually changed the world. After the last apostle died, uh, you know, we believe the last apostle was John. Uh, and after he died 20 to 30 years later, there was a very, very ancient Christian document. Uh, we don't actually know who wrote it, but it's called the letter, or it's called the epistle. Let me see if I can get this right, to Diognetus. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it, but I'm just, phonetically, that's what it says. The epistle to Diognetus. Diognetus was a non-Christian guy, and the epistle was written from a follower of Jesus to Diognetus, explaining to him why Christianity was expanding and exploding so drastically, and what was the heart behind it. And so this is what it says in the letter. I, I, the, the letter's like 13, it's like a, one of the books in your Bible, it's, it's about 13 chapters long, uh, but there's a beautiful segment in about the fourth chapter uh, and this is basically what it says. It's a little bit of paraphrase, but, but this is, it's almost word for word what he says. He says, let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens for every, for every foreign country is to them as their native land. And every native land is their foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not, do, they do not destroy their children. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and make, and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Beautiful passage, um, and there's so much, again, uh, in those couple of paragraphs, but I want to look just really quickly at four categories, and we're going to go through them quick because I don't want to get sidetracked from the main point, but I think it's worth, worth noting. Uh, four categories that kind of define this group of early Christians. Uh, so again, this is 20, 30 years after the last apostle uh, died, uh, so this is the very beginning of the explosive growth of Christianity. Uh, first, first thing that we notice is that there was a complete absence of racism. Every foreign country is to them their native land. That's what he says. And every native land is as their foreign country. The early Christians were Jews. They were Africans. They were Greeks. They were Romans. And they all came together miraculously into the same family uh, because they were Christians first. They were Africans second. They were Christians first. They were Greeks second. They were Christians first. They were Romans second. They were Christians first. They were Jews second. Their relationship with God completely redefined their relationships with others. So the, the early church, there was an absence of racism. There was people from every ethnicity, tribe, nation in that world, in that sphere, coming together, making up the community uh, of Jesus' followers, the church. Christianity gives you a higher authority than your cultural tradition, a higher authority than your race. So this was already existing in the early church. Second thing we rec recognize that they had a high view of life. It says they married and had children, but they did not destroy their own children. Back then, it was normal that if you had a female child, you could throw it in the river. The parents had the right to do that. Slave owners were also expendable. Women were 
uh, seen in that culture as property. You know, today we actually have, we, we hear these political arguments um, about women's rights or babies' rights, and that type of argument didn't even exist in the early church because they loved people. They loved life. Women's rights, yes. Baby, babies' rights, yes. Yes to all of it. They believe that to love is to act. And so this was an identifier in the early church that while communities and other people and other groups were actually sacrificing their babies, killing their babies, giving away their babies, leaving their babies out, the church would take in babies from other families and raise them. The church would actually bring in women that were divorced or neglected. They would take care of the oppressed Over and over again in Scripture, we see the the importance of taking care of the the widows and the oppressed and the people that are seen as less than or don't have rights or don't have the same opportunities in society. The church was the place that actually brought them in and gave them home. So we see that as as a defining characteristic of the early church. The third thing we see is that they had an unusual view of sex. I know you're like, okay, can we talk more about this other stuff? I don't want to talk about money. Um... Uh, but, but it's worth noting that the, the pagan understanding of sexuality in that time, uh, they, they treated sex like it was an appetite. If you were hungry, you would eat. And so their view of sex was if you were sexy, you would have sex. That was like their, their simple understanding of sexuality. But then, then along came followers of Jesus who had this radical sex ethic that believed that sexuality was the commitment, was the covenant-making act of two people committing together for the rest of their lives. This is also something that helped transform the culture and the world. The fourth thing we see is that the early Christians, and back to the main point, were radically generous. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. The early followers of Jesus were marked by eye-popping, radical generosity that couldn't go unnoticed by the rest of the world around them. People couldn't believe how quickly they were able and willing to give their money away for the sake of others. They were short of things because they were so generous. And yet it says they were short of things, but they had everything. So because there was this generosity in the community, everybody actually lived with a little bit less, but by everybody living with a little bit less, everybody else had enough. People were content with what they had, and no one was in need. So how could the Roman Empire, with its immorality, its slavery, its, uh, its practices of murder, how could that culture be so transformed within a couple of hundred years? Eventually, Christianity would take over the Roman Empire. How did that happen? The answer is that nobody could match the beauty Nobody can match the beauty of how followers of Jesus lived. Nobody could match the radical generosity in how they treated other human beings and how they understood their own wealth and their own finances and how they leveraged that for the sake of others. The generosity of the early church was beautiful and it was outrageous and they believed if we actually love God and love people, then to love is to act and we need to do something. So that's the first thing we see that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 9, that this is the impact of generosity, that people had their needs met, but after they had their needs met, they also gave glory and thanks to God. Their needs met horizontally, and then they turned vertically and gave thanks to God. 
Now, the motive of generosity, their primary motive for generosity wasn't the need. And this is important to understand because there's no shortages of needs in the world. You know, at SunWest, we've articulated a couple of needs that we want to invest in because we recognize we can't meet every need. You know, so the reason that we, we share certain stories and highlight certain ministries like we do this morning is because we've said, as a church, these are things that we're investing in, but we recognize there's hundreds of great and beautiful things out there, uh, but we're not driven by need because we can't meet every need, but we're going to be strategic in what we do invest in. Um, but the motive for generosity was not the need. There's an overwhelm. There's too, there's too many needs in the, wor- in the world. Um, the motive for generosity was their need. Now, let me explain this. The motive for generosity wasn't the needs out there. The motive for generosity was their needs, uh, their need themselves. And this is the way Paul says it. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide an increase and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. God is the one who provides, and this was foundational for the church to understand how to treat their material wealth. Everything we have ultimately comes from God. Uh, You know, this isn't the type of message that we get in our world. We often get the message of, you deserve this, you should have this, you earn this, you know, uh, they owe it to you. You've earned it with what? You earned it with the opportunity that you had of being born at this time in the world. You didn't choose to be born here. Now, you earned it with the breath that you have. You earned it with the talent and capacity that you have to think, to discern. You earned it probably because of networks of relationships that gave you an opportunity to move forward wherever you find yourselves. Uh, In all of our talk about earning it, sometimes we can forget that most of the reasons that we find ourselves where we find ourselves are because of things that were completely outside of our own control. The conviction of followers of Jesus is that every gift is actually from God. Every good and perfect thing comes from God. Everything that's been given and provided is actually from God. And because of that, there's a responsibility that we have. It's a very different mindset than saying, I'm here because I made it here myself. That's a prideful, arrogant mindset. We're here because of God's goodness in our lives. We're here because of God's provision. Yes, at some point we had to make decisions to partner with God, uh, to work ourselves, but let's make no mistake that you and I are sitting in this room, we're, we're in this place, we have the opportunities we have because of things that were outside of our control. Now, I don't know if, um, if you have kids, you've probably experienced this, right, where you give, you know, I'll use an example, give my kids a, you know, an Xbox game, and, uh, and they get the game, they're playing the game, and then, you know, I want to play with them, and they say, no, it's my game. And as a parent, you're like, oh, who gave you that game? I mean, I gave you that game. You know, or, or like you buy your kids a chocolate bar, it's like, I'm going to buy you a chocolate bar, you know, can I have just one little bite? And it's like, no, it's my chocolate bar. I'm like, who gave? Like, do you not, do you not recognize? I didn't have to give it to you. I could have ate the whole chocolate bar, you know, um, no, venting as a parent. Uh, but you, know, you, you could kind of take that principle even bigger, bigger than that. Say someone came to you and said, you know, I'm going to buy you this you know, $700,000 house, and you're going to live uh, you know, here in South Calgary, um, and this is a gift to you, but I want to live in one room in that house. I want to live in the basement suite. You can have the house, but I want to live in the basement suite. You know, it would be completely ridiculous for you to say, 
Uh, no, I want the house, but you can't live with me. Because the whole thing was a gift. Right? You understand what I'm saying? And, and we actually, in, we, we don't even th- realize that we do this, but we think that we have earned everything. We recognize that, we, we fail to recognize that everything we have is a gift from God. And if we, if we actually see it that way, it becomes ridiculous to think that, why wouldn't I actually give this back to God? You know, if somebody gave you a whole house and they said, you know, I want to live in 10% of the house, you, you would say, you know, that makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and so we forget the perspective that actually God has gifted us. He's given us everything we have. Um, in, earlier, in, in a different letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, what, what do you have that is not a gift? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? So one of the motives for Christians' generosity was their belief that God was the provider. But it moves beyond that. In 2 Corinthians 9, in the middle of that passage, uh, it says, As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you're obedient to the good news of Christ. So again, remember I said the motive for the generosity was not the needs out there, but the motive for generosity was their needs that they had. The motive for generosity actually came from the gospel, the good news of what Jesus had done, because they recognized that they were in need of the gospel. This is the transforming act that was the motive for the radical generosity of their early church. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you were obedient, that you're responding to the gospel of Jesus. It's actually our generosity that tells us whether or not we understand the gospel, whether or not it's transformed our lives, whether or not we recognize that I only have life because Jesus gave his life. And when that starts to seep into our hearts, it actually expresses itself in generosity. Earlier in the, in this, in the letter, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul gives this phrase that I think is really the thesis or the main idea for the entire thing that he writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You know, here's the good news. Here's the gospel in one verse. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was generous. Because though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty you could become rich. And so when we say we're followers of Jesus, we actually take the posture of Jesus. Who, though he was rich, became poor so that for the sake of others they could become rich. So before Paul asked the Corinthian church to give, before he says there's this famine happening, would you consider radically giving and being generous towards this cause? If you rewind the tape, um, you guys know what a tape is? Um, If you skip back (laughs) um, to 2 Corinthians 8, you realize the whole motive, before he even talks about the need out there, he reminds the entire church of who they are and why they are who they are. It's because Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that Through his poverty, we might become rich. Let's remind ourselves of that. And now let's talk about the need, because that actually sets us up to be a generous people when we realize how much we've received from a generous God. And so Paul's whole summary that he's saying is, God gives generously, therefore go give generously. God gives generously, so therefore go give generously. Give like God gives. 
If this is what God is like, if this is what he's done for you, and you say that you're a love, lover of God, that you're a follower of Jesus, then act like God. Live your lives like Jesus lived his life. Now, you might be thinking, that's great. I like the idea, but I just can't do it. I like the idea of being generous. It sounds really nice. Um, uh, but I don't have the capacity to be generous. Um, I think that there's certain things that actually jam up our life, that create barriers in our life to be, be a generous person. Um, I, I think of the picture of, it was a Thursday morning, Thursday or Wednesday morning, I think it was Thursday, where we had like the big snow storm, uh, and I was dropping my kids off for school. Um, a practice that usually takes 10-ish minutes took me an hour and a half on Thursday to get my kids to school. <laughs> you know, uh, the traffic was backed up in every direction, um, and, and I, 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 I think I did take the worst route. Uh, and then I, it was just took me forever to get to school. And I had a destination. I had a destination that I had to get to, and it was so frustrating not to, not to be able to get there. Uh, and so if generosity is, is the destination, if that's uh, the type of person that we're being called to be, what are the traffic jams? What are the things that are impeding us from getting to that destination? You might wake up and be like, I want to get there. And then you realize, I can't get there. Here's a few things that I think stand in our way. Uh, the first one is greed. I hate to name it, but it is there. Uh, we live in a world uh, that says you need more. And we often believe that we need more. Uh, we spent a whole series on this, uh, talking about uh, the lie of thinking that we need more to actually be content and have meaning and purpose in our lives. It's a complete lie. And if you want to learn more about it, go back and listen to the comparison trap. But I think greed is one of those things, if we're honest with ourselves, we look in the mirror, is preventing us from being generous uh, because our desire to have more is greater than our desire to actually meet the needs or to help somebody else. Uh, I think debt is a very real challenge that is preventing people from being generous. Some of you are stuck in debt. You can't pay your bills. You have deficits on your visa statements. And you can't get ahead of the curve. And then so when an opportunity becomes generous comes up, you say, I don't have the capacity to go there to do that. And that's a very practical reality why some of you aren't able to step into this radical generosity. Uh, some of us are too busy, especially when we think about generosity in terms of our time, time, treasure, talent. Some of us are too busy, especially when we think, uh, when we think of time and you were to do a priority audit. If you looked at the way that you're spending your time, does it reflect the heart and the values that God has and how he would want you to spend your time? How are you spending your hours, your days, your years in a way that reflect God's priorities? And maybe you're overcommitted and you're, you're going in so many different directions that you actually can't give priority to certain things in your life because you're too busy. I think the fourth uh, barrier is a poverty mindset. And my guess is this might be one of the biggest barriers in this room from stopping us from being a radically generous people. The poverty mindset is basically a mindset that says, I don't have enough and I need a little bit more. It's the belief that there's always more that you need to survive. It's the belief that you lack, that you have lack. And it's interesting because uh, this belief system, this poverty mindset can exist whether you have, you don't even have a shelter, a house, like some of the families we're going to be building for in a couple of weeks. This poverty mindset can exist 
um, if you have millions of dollars in your bank account. The poverty mindset is not dependent on how much you have. It's actually, it is what it says it is. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. And if you think that you always lack, if you think that you never have enough, it actually prevents you from a generous, a generous mindset. So just take a minute here. Which barrier listed here do you find the greatest barrier to stepping forward in radical generosity? Maybe the first step for you to be a generous person and the way that God's calling you to be is to identify this barrier. Identify the thing that's stopping you from getting to that destination. So whether it's greed, whether it's debt, whether it's busyness, whether maybe it's a mindset. Identifying it and then asking the tough question, of what are you going to do about it? Are you, are you going to ignore it or are you going to look it in the face and say, I'm actually going to deal with it because I believe God's called me to be a generous person. And if there's something stopping me from being generous... It's probably worth my time and energy to figure out what that is. Because the truth is that God cares less about what you give than if you give. God's not concerned about how much you give, but God is actually concerned about us giving because it's an expression of what we've received from God. Because the truth is, this is where I want to end, generosity begins wherever you are. As counterintuitive as it seems, if you wait to arrive, if you wait to get to some certain point before you're generous, uh, you're never going to be a generous person. Some of the most generous people I've ever met are people that had very, very little. As counterintuitive as as it seems, generosity begins wherever you are. You can be generous in some way wherever you are. And it's important to make generosity a priority. Why? Because Jesus, who became rich, became poor, so that for our sakes we might become poor rich. And saying I can't be generous is very different than saying I won't be generous. So you find yourself this morning saying I can't be generous. Identify where that is and say, are you willing to look that in the face and deal with it? And then look at what you have and ask the question, what if it was true that generosity begins wherever I am and that my circumstances actually don't need to dictate whether or not I start to be generous? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, though you were rich, became poor so that through your poverty we might become rich. Lord, I can't help but sense the irony in that where we who are rich don't recognize we're rich and struggle to become poor so that for the sake of others they might become rich. Lord, may we be transformed with the good news that you paid a significant price to redeem us, to be in relationship with us, and that should transform our very posture towards how we use our time, our talent, and our treasure. Lord, we pray for a movement of God like the first century, Lord, where the the world and the culture around looks at this radically generous church And may that transform our communities. May that transform places like El Salvador, places like Myanmar. Lord, may the generosity of your church be multiplied through your spirit to bring your kingdom of heaven to earth. In Jesus' name, amen.
As we close, if there's one thing that I wanna, would want to emphasize, it's that generosity is the fruit of the gospel. Generosity is the fruit of the good news. Generosity is the fruit of a life that's been transformed by Jesus. Uh, it's not the starting point. Uh, and so if you are hearing this morning um, pressure to give, to be more generous, uh, we've missed the point. Uh, if, if you are someone who is journeying in faith and asking questions or trying to make sense of uh, Jesus, uh, don't even think about what I just said. Think about the fact that Jesus, who is rich, became poor so that for your sake you might become rich. Uh, if you are struggling to be generous, reflect on that verse. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Reflect on that verse. Because generosity is the fruit of the gospel. And if we just try and be more generous, uh, we might give, but we might give begrudgingly. Remember it said in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, we've heard that so many times in our life. We're like, ah. Uh, but the reality is we can only give cheerfully when we recognize that we've received so freely. Um, and so if I could implore us to do anything, it would be to be transformed and overwhelmed by the good news that Jesus, became who is rich, became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And if that's true, if that's the basis of our life, the basis of our meaning, the basis of our purpose, the basis of our calling, then we probably ought to be a generous people. We ought to be like Jesus to those around us. Uh, as I, I'm going to pray, uh, but as I finish praying, there'll be prayer teams at the front. We would invite you to come forward uh, for any needs that you might have, any celebrations you might have. Uh, maybe you're, you're asking God for healing in your life. Um, we would invite you to come forward. We'd love to pray for whatever it is uh, that might be uh, going on or happening in your life. Uh, so let's pray together now. Jesus, we thank you again that you were rich and became poor. Um, Lord, if uh, anything that's been said or read this morning has been twisted as a, a shame to give more, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak truth to that lie in Jesus' name. Uh, Lord, this is not actually about shame or pressure. This is about opening our eyes to see the reality of what's happened and what you've done for us. Lord, it's about us addressing the lie, Lord, that there are uh, things, uh, there are reasons that are happening that prevent us from being generous. I pray that we would realize that generosity can start wherever we are. Lord, so each person in the room, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak and show us in our context, in our life, in our stage of life, in our income, in our friend group, in our workplace, what does it mean for me to be generous? What does it mean for me to reflect the generosity of God to those around me? So, Lord, we just pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you for coming. Have a blessed week. Uh, we'll see you next week.